Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about business development, then this is the episode for you because my next guest has logged over a decade working for some of the world's largest online gaming networks and platforms, as well as OEMs, that stands for Original Equipment Manufacturers, doing biz dev. But before I introduce you to Tina Tran, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's newsletter that showcases upcoming guests and it gives you career insights and inspiration. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Tina Tran, a director of business development at Microsoft, where she leads the biz dev team that manages all mobile Android OEM and App Store Play Store strategic partnerships. Prior to joining Microsoft in 2019, Tina had already spent a decade in biz dev and developer partnerships at companies like Halfbrick, Mochi Media, OpenFaint, and Facebook, where she worked worked on educational content strategy and led a $10 million fund to seed the virtual reality ecosystem with award-winning content. Tina then moved into the reality labs at Facebook, where she was head of enterprise partnerships and was a founding member of the enterprise team. In addition to her day job in 2018, Tina joined the Portfolio Femtech Fund, where she is both an investor in, or I should just say she is an investor in high potential opportunities that are both profitable and give women better health and wellness. Tina, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated on your tea and ready to go? I am. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here today. I am so excited to have you because in addition to your super interesting career, one of the things that so kind of just pumped me up for this interview is your backstory, Tina. And the fact that you really experienced what anybody would say was a very traumatic experience as a child and have managed to pull from that some incredible North Stars for the way that you live your life and the way that you have led your life to date. And it began when you were super young. You were like, what, three years old? I was... Somewhere between three and four years old, because it was a, a long journey. Yes. And you weren't born in this country. You arrived here, I guess, about age four and didn't speak a word of English. You spoke your native tongue of Vietnamese. Why did you and your family emigrate to the U.S.? When Saigon fell in 1975, my mom was pregnant with me. So we would have left then, except it was just too dangerous to leave because uh, of the pregnancy. So we waited, I guess, three or four years until we felt like it wasn't really safe to be in Vietnam anymore because there was a lot of prosecution of, and persecution of, of people. 
there after the communist regime took over. And so we fled by boat, like many Vietnamese people did back in, in that time. And we were very lucky to make it over to the U.S. in one piece. because There's a lot of people that were lost at sea, either because of storms or because there were a lot of pirates that were taking advantage of people leaving. So boat loads of people were killed, a lot of raping happening. It's a very scary time. And my first memory in life is being handed over to a pirate at sea because our boat got hijacked, which was, I think, very common. And the people on the boat thought that a small child, a girl, would be a good peace offering to the pirates. So before the pirates boarded our boat, they handed me over to the pirate. And I kind of knew even at that like three and a half, four year old age that there were expectations of me to, you know, not wail in the pirate's face and cry and really upset him. So I just kind of smiled and I did my best to, to not upset the pirate. And you know, we were lucky. Nobody got hurt. We just had all of our things taken. My mom doesn't have a wedding ring to this day. She doesn't wear one still. And you, you know, possessions don't really mean much when you get to be alive. <laughs> So those are, you know, my first memories, the pirate. And then my second memories are really my childhood memories are living in a refugee camp for the first year that I can remember. So that was a very frightening experience as well, because it's very unsafe. There's really no doors and there's a lot of fear of abandonment because there's a lot of unknowns. And so it was a scary time. And I think my experience on the island and the refugee camp helped fortify my belief in what I was capable of because it was a hard time. And yeah, we survived it. Thank you so much for sharing that. You tell a story on another podcast, um, 20 Minutes with Bronwyn, right. with our mutual friend Bronwyn Salambani, about what happened in terms of it was involving food because <laughs> you didn't get a lot of food. No. And the kids, I guess each day would be allotted one cookie. Yeah, and yeah. I love how you <laughs> managed to sure. get yourself another cookie. So the parents every day lined up for their allotment of milk and food, rations for us. And then kids lined up every day for our allotment of one cookie a day. And it was, you know, it was an island where there were a lot of storms. So food was somewhat infrequent, not, not consistent because there would be late shipments. And just in general, there just wasn't a lot of food. So I was hungry all the time. I would watch other people eat and I, they would have to like move me. They would have to ask my mom to move me because I couldn't eat with my big sad eyes watching them because I was just so hungry. I didn't, I didn't know how to be polite. I didn't know how to look away and, and not show that hunger. After my first cookie, I guess I ate it very quickly and I decided I wanted another cookie that day. And what they did was they put a big X on your hand with a permanent marker. So I went to the bathroom and I rub that really scratchy borax soap off. And it basically took like the layer of my top skin off, right? And, uh, and I had, it was very red and I went back up and I guess all the kids probably looked the same to them. And I raised my hand to show them that I hadn't received a cookie already. And I went and took my cookie and sat on the floor, sat in the dirt, in our little encampment. And my mom was like, I thought you already had a cookie today. And I said, well, I kind of knew that what I'd done was wrong, but I also knew that I, I just kind of found another way to get what I needed. <laughs> and I told her I, what I'd done. And she looked at me and she said, whatever happens, you're going to be okay. <laughs> so it just, you know, made her believe like I would, I had the instincts to take care of myself. And that was good. She could have responded very differently. Actually made me proud of what I had done. And it made me, I think, believe a little bit more in myself and my instincts. Well, speaking of 
being proud of what you've done and what you have accomplished. One thing I didn't mention in Tina's introduction is the fact that in 2018, she became a presidential leadership scholar. This is a program that was established by presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush in partnership with the George H.W. Bush Library and Lyndon B. Johnson Presidential Libraries. And the program brings together leaders like Tina who share a commitment to helping solve some of society's greatest challenges. Wow, (laughs) that's pretty darn cool. Congratulations, Tina. Thank you. I mean, an absolute dream come true being able to meet presidents and getting to know them and have a relationship, you know, with, with them. Like it was incredible. So the first president I got to meet was president George HW Bush and Mrs. Bush. And I told her that I came to the U S as a refugee and I was just so happy to be there with her. And she looked at me and she said, we're happy you're here too. And it would just meant everything to me. I couldn't, I couldn't tell if she meant like in the U S or just there in the present, but it was just the most welcoming kind thing. And that was really beautiful. Yeah. And when she said that in 2018, I don't think our country was sending out vibes to the rest of the world that we were a welcoming place for refugees and immigrants. So I have no doubt those words meant even more to you, Tina. It was very special. And and I've gotten also to know George W. Bush, and he also has a very kind heart like his like his parents and is coming out with a new book actually next month where he's painting pictures of former immigrants and refugees. And I had the pleasure to get to know him well enough to be in his book. So that's going to be pretty amazing. I have no idea what picture he painted of me. I guess I'll find out like everybody else when I get my book. Because I I think he just chose a photo. That is so cool. There are not many people out there, Tina, who can (laughs) say that they've had their portrait painted by a president. And the joy was just getting to know him. So it's just like, he didn't just choose like a random person, but because we knew each other, it just it felt so much more special that he would then know my family's story and take the time to, to talk about our journey. Well, I wanted to share your journey coming to this country before we dug into your professional journey after you went through elementary school and middle school, high school and college. We will touch on college later. But I wanted our listeners to just get a sense of how incredible it is to welcome refugees to the United States and what a gift it is to this melting pot that is the United States to have women and men Children like Tina join and joining us and helping us to build businesses and other opportunities. So without further ado, Tina, let's dive into what you are doing now at Microsoft as the director of the business development team that manages all mobile Android OEM and App Store play, blah, 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 (laughs) strategic partnerships. And perhaps you could also weave into there what business development is. Sure. I think business development uh, at a very high level is finding a strategic sort of mutual benefit between two companies and coming together to either strengthen your product, strengthen your customer 
offering and just work better together than you would work alone. So it doesn't have to be in technology like I am now. It could be in any industry. You know, you see people like Amazon partnered with Kohl's so that when people wanted to send back their returns, they wouldn't, they could just walk into a Kohl's store and give it to somebody as opposed to have to go to the post office. And Kohl's benefit was they get people trafficking through their stores. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's simple. It can be very simple ideas that would resonate in, in real life. It doesn't have to be particularly technical in nature. So I, I just love that when you think about these ideas and bring them to life, everybody benefits, your companies benefit, your customers benefit. It just feels like such a win-win all around. That's what business development is at, at a very high level is finding that special something that's going to delight your customers or make your company run better. Excellent. So what are you doing? in your biz dev role. Right. So at Microsoft, what I'm doing is I manage our partnership with an incredible team. And we are looking after the relationship between Apple and Microsoft, as well as Google, as well as Samsung. So those are the the big distribution partners that we have. So what that looks like is we have over 100 apps on the Apple App Store so that when you're on your iPhone or iPad, you can easily access Outlook, Office, you can easily access all of the tools that you need to be productive, whether it's at school or at work. And we do the same on the Android store for folks that have Android phones. So we manage the Google relationship there. And then Samsung has a ton of incredible users using their beautiful productivity-focused phones. And so we have preload opportunities there where we're not necessarily... We are in the Galaxy store, but you don't have to go and download the app. You can, when you buy a new phone find Outlook preloaded on there so you can just go and use it. It just makes it, again, that much easier for the customer. It's about making things easy and for the customer and giving them a great user experience. So those are some examples of how we work with the the stores and, and those companies. Let me just ask you because... I'm wondering if our listeners may be hearing what I'm hearing. Yeah. Because we were talking about you when you were a little child and you have a little child. I'm wondering, could your child be playing in the background and rolling some things? Oh, yeah. That would be actually my cat. My child is luckily at school right now. And I am going to find that little roller. Oh, that is so funny because I was hearing like a little... Oh, what a playful cat. But I thought, gosh, your child is so quiet. She's so good. She's just continuing to roll some little... I got it. We're good. Okay, thanks. So what are your job responsibilities, Tina? What does it mean when you have the title director of the business development team? It basically means I manage a team that works on the day-to-day relationship as well. And I help them unblock any issues that they might have and help them surface issues as well to our leadership team. Because obviously, when we work on Apple, Google, and other big partners, it's something that is visible all the way up to the CEO level. So these are very high visibility partnerships, which means they have even greater impact, feels even more rewarding working on them. So do you actually interface with any of the partners, whether it's Samsung, Apple, or... um, Google. Google. Or is that primarily people who report up to you? Oh, no. We interface for sure. So well, back in the old days, we would get together for lunch. They would fly up to Redmond or we would go down and meet them at their headquarters. So absolutely, we meet in person. It's hard to build a a partnership and a relationship without meeting in person. It's a very important component of business development. So how do you do that then? 
in a virtual world? Well, in a virtual world, it is much harder. I think you just have to set up times to maybe get together on a one-on-one where you have no agenda and it's outside of the normal course and you just you share what you did over the weekend. You share what it is you're working on now that's really interesting. You ask people about their interests. So it, it, yeah, it's, it's about being curious about their, their overall life and not just focused on work, work, work. Because in Tina's Espresso Shots episode, and please check out show notes to see if that has already dropped, she talked about one of the most important soft skills. And frankly, she was saying the soft skills are really the only skills that matter in business development. You need to be a great listener and really good with your curiosity and asking questions so that you can surface your partner's pain points and try to solve them for them. Yeah, I think if they understand what is keeping your partners up, then you can work on something that's meaningful to both of you so that you can help solve each other's problems or make life easier. And as you do that, you often make your customer's life easier as well. So what does success look like for you in this role and for your team, Tina? Success for us looks like being able to be anywhere our users are. So if our users are on their mobile device, we're right there with them. And the experience is just as good as if they were on their laptop or PC. It's empowering our users to achieve more and working with our partners to be able to do that. That's what success looks like. So it's growing our users on these mobile platforms. It's getting five-star reviews on our apps in the store. So that means that people are enjoying the experience. It's making our products available and making our products better. We did a deal recently with Apple TV, where when we launched our new Xbox console during the holiday season, we added Apple TV as something that you can do if you're played a ton of games and want to just relax and watch a show. You don't have to get up and change anything. You can just go into the, you know, the home screen and choose Apple TV. You can watch your favorite show. So being able to kind of put things together that impact people's lives, make their lives more fun, more meaningful, more relaxing, especially these days, that's success to us is making it easier for our users and customers and to delight them. Excellent. I want our listeners to know that prior to joining Facebook, which was the company that you were at just before you joined Microsoft, Mm -hmm. you had spent about nine years in the online and mobile gaming space, primarily doing business development and developer relations. Right. What does that mean? How was it different in the online gaming space, if at all? So different because it was a much smaller company, right? So now being at a Facebook and a Microsoft, you have to get a lot more buy-in. When you're at a startup, and those were like startups I was at before, 100 people and less for the most part, you get to be creative and you get to take moonshots. And maybe it's only the CEO that has to say yes. There's not like a whole bunch of people that need to say yes. So it's, it's really exciting. And the impact that you have is at, in some ways even greater because your company is smaller, uh, your resources are smaller. So it's, it's really meaningful. I, you know, I did a deal when I was at Half Brick where we had this really popular game called Fruit Ninja. You may have heard of it. It's the game that one of the first games that came out on the iPhone that was really popular. And it was getting older in its days. It was like maybe five years old and it needed a refresh. It was losing users and we didn't know how to gain new users. And at the time, it was very expensive to acquire users. You could put ads and it would cost like $5 to acquire a user, but somebody would have to click on your ad. 
And for a startup, we can't spend that kind of money in acquiring users when our game is only a dollar. <laughs> so the yeah. ROI just doesn't work. <laughs> and so I came up to our CEO and I said, how about we refresh the game with some really interesting IP? You know, the Halloween is coming up. Maybe we can partner with somebody like Ghostbusters and turn it into like a spooky fruit ninja game where the fruit, maybe it has like a funny glow to it, right? You could just like, if you got a bomb in the way and you were slimed, instead of just blowing up, it would like slime the screen. Like there, there could be really fun. So we did this partnership with the makers, the license holders of Ghostbusters. And it was a complete success. Like we had so many users that we didn't have to acquire because they, they came in because the game was fresh and interesting again. So we were able to save a ton of money in terms of acquiring users. We were able to grow our user base immensely and delight them with this new version. And it gave just new life to the game. It was incredibly powerful. And it was actually great for our, our partner because they had this old brand, Ghostbusters, that there hadn't been a new movie in decades. And now they found a new audience for this old IP. So it's being able to kind of find these great fits that come out of nowhere and being able to pitch like a Hollywood studio. Like, why would you partner with us? It's, it's so interesting. And part of it is I didn't have any contacts in Hollywood at the time. So I really had to hustle. They're really not easy to get. You know, like, who do you talk to? And who do you cold email? And then after we did that deal, I was able to do a whole bunch of other deals with other Hollywood studios. And part of it was because I had this great relationship with the person I was working with that he then gave me the contact names of the people who are basically his competitors in the industry so that I could work with them on you know IP licensing for the other IP that I thought would be interesting for our other games. So it's like business development is all about relationships and building good relationships and having great experiences working together. People will want to continue working with you and even help you when it doesn't help them at all. It might even hurt them. And that actually speaks to how you network. Absolutely. Because networking is such a foundational skill set that you need to learn. And again, in that wonderful interview that you did with Bronwyn Salambani, you talked about, and I just thought, oh, what a beautiful way of looking at it to approach networking. Like you're looking for ways to find joy. It's, it's more like making new friends. Yeah, it's, help. it's finding ways where you want to find somebody that you'd love to work with, right? And you find an opportunity where you can both help each other. How great is that? And then if you both succeed, then it's great for your companies. It's great for both of your careers. It's like everybody wins. So I think people often think of networking as like, what can I get? And, and who, who can I meet that can pull me up or whatever that is? But it's not really about that. It's like, how can you help each other? And how do you build true relationships so that people will think of you when there are opportunities that might have nothing to do with them, but this like, oh, you should talk to Tina because, you know, I worked with her on this and she was great to work with. So it's building a reputation at the end of the day. Like networking is building a reputation for yourself and making it, making yourself somebody that others want to work with and want to collaborate with. Fantastic advice, Tina. So Tina, I would love to flashback to when you were in college. You mentioned in our Espresso Shots episode that you got your BA in communication studies, not in marketing or business or tech. Did you know what you wanted to do with your communication degree when you graduated? I just knew that I liked communications as an area to study about humans. How do we communicate? How, how do we do mass? What's mass communication like? What is interpersonal communication? How do you persuade? All of those things I found very fascinating. 
I was interested a little bit in broadcast journalism. You know, growing up, I saw Connie Chung on the TV screen every evening, and it made me think that I could do that, right? So it was something that was interesting in the back of my mind. But I was very lucky to be able to study what I found most interesting and also leave at school and get a great job. And it wasn't in the industry that hires communications majors. It was doing well enough at school where I had a high GPA, where employer would look at me and say, you know, she's smart. She's driven, right? It, it, it signals certain things when you have a, a good GPA and I'll hire her because I just want somebody that's smart and is analytical and thoughtful, right? So luckily for me, consulting, they were just looking for smart people. They didn't care really what your degree was in. So what was your first job and how did you get it? My first job was in management consulting. It was quite hard. I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up with any connections. And so I didn't really have internships in college that were very interesting. I basically just worked for money in the summers. And so I wasn't working at like Microsoft or other places as an intern. And when folks looked at my resume, it was quite light. I just had a really good GPA. Not even that good. I was maybe like a 3.5 or 3.6, like past what their bar was to, to get interviewed. And... It's hard because you know people are just looking at your resume. You don't have a chance to get in front of them and make the pitch. So you have to kind of do the work to be able to be in the room, right? So I was lucky I, I did enough of the work to be in the room. But then I went to a career night for management consulting. And I got to learn a little bit more about management consulting. And I thought it was very interesting. And I took the card of a gentleman that was, uh, that was there that everybody really liked. Because he just had a really good view on what consulting was. And so I had my interviews and really wanted to be in New York coming out of LA. Not a lot of people took jobs in New York or were able to get jobs in New York because they have their pick of Ivy League students. And I was cold calling New York offices saying, I'd like to work in New York. What do I need to do? And this kind woman from Cooper's and Librand said, you, know, you need to interview with our LA office first. And if they give you the go ahead, you can come to New York and interview with us. So I showed up to look on the board for you know, people that were slated for interviews and my name wasn't there. So I was really confused. I called her and I said, you know, my name's not on the board. I wonder if there was a mistake. She said, don't worry about it. I'll look into it. We'll get it fixed. So I was able to get my interview. And <laughs> the next day when I showed up, I had the last interview of the day and the gentleman sitting across from me welcomed me by saying, you know, I'm the one that took your resume out of the pile. I'm kind of annoyed that you're sitting in front of right now. Like, I think he felt that I had circumvented the process somehow. And he said, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I don't like being told who to interview. And I didn't take it personally. I just said, uh, I, uh, sorry, I wanted to interview with the New York office. And I called him. I thought it was a mistake. I didn't realize that my, my resume had been actively taken out of the pile. And he's like, well, you're here. And I was like, yeah, let's do this. So we, we talked for an hour. And at the end of our session, he said to me, you know, you're the last person I'm interviewing today. And I think you're the most interesting of everyone I've spoken to. So I'm going to send you on to New York and I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> so I was able to go to New York and close and get an offer and got my dream job in New York. I was the first person I hired west of the Mississippi in that role because they didn't need to in the past or want to. And I became kind of like known as the, you know, the gal from California because there was uh, not a lot of other people in our New York office had that signature to their name. But you know, there was a lot of work heading up to that. My resume was a mess because I, I didn't know how to pitch to a consulting company. And so the, the gentleman that came and spoke to us at Management Consulting Night, I kept his card and he didn't know me because you know, with hundreds of people there that night that wanted to speak to him. And I interviewed with his firm and his firm didn't give me an offer. Well, they didn't invite me back for a second round. And I, I asked the people I interviewed with, can I get some feedback? So I'd love to get a job at some point. 
And I, I totally know I blew it. So I'm not asking you to give me a second chance. I just want some feedback. And I would really appreciate that. And the people I interviewed with would not return my mails. And so I emailed him and said, Hey, I interviewed with your firm. I interviewed with these two fellas. They won't give me any feedback. Again, I would like a job at some point. And I would really appreciate their feedback. And he went and talked to them and they were like, I'm not, you know, we're not going to give her feedback. She just wasn't a good fit. We're not interested in talking to her. So he felt pity for me. And he, I think he felt bad because I don't believe that he didn't like how they were behaving. So he said, you know, I'll, I'll come and I'll meet you at school and we'll, let's go to lunch and I'll get to know you. And let's tell you more about management consulting. That's what, <laughs> so he actually came, you know, management consultants are really busy. He was a manager and he came to campus and we had lunch and he basically mentored me and told me, here's what we're looking for. And he really helped me strengthen my resume, helped me understand the right thing to, to really say and understand like what it is that management consultants want in new hires. So it, you know, it wasn't just like cold calling. It's not like one thing that you do. It's a mindset of asking people for help. It's a mindset of being sincere. It's a mindset of not being afraid to ask for help. Because I know a lot of people, you feel a little shy about asking. If you don't ask, you don't get there's no harm. Because if they say no, you're in the same place. <laughs> you're in the exact same place. But they might just say yes. And I got a couple of yeses I got like three yeses in a row. And had I not tried, had I not showed up, had I not made the extra effort, it would have just been a big no. And I'd just gone the normal way, kind of like the, with my cookie story. Had I just gone I and like just followed the rule, that. <laughs> then like I, but you have to like think out of the box and believe in yourself and believe that you're worth people's time and your, your dreams are worth, you know, like my dream was to work in New York. So I had that goal. My plan was to wake up and cold call people. I had that plan. And you, know, and you woke up super early. Right? And I woke, I woke up at like, I would wake up super early because I had classes, right? So I had called the East Coast and before my classes. And so actually when you find, when you have goals and you are more, you find yourself more structured when you actually have like a compressed schedule. So it allowed me to, to really be thoughtful about my time and to take, make the most of my time. So I would get up early and I would call and I got super lucky. So but again, the luck didn't fall on my lap. It was a, a, a product of the work and the plan you put together and the confidence you have in yourself to ask. I just got an email. It was one of these. I'm on a listserv mm -hmm. for a meditation teacher. Her name is Emily Fletcher. I actually interviewed her on Time for Coffee and she, she's got an amazing story. But this is how the email today began, Tina. When I was in my 20s, I got into the habit of saying, I'm the luckiest person I know. I'm sure it was mildly annoying to my friends. This was long before I was meditating, manifesting, and studying the Vedas. But you know what happened? I became the luckiest person I knew. So it's, it is about your mindset. It is about making the luck happen because you put yourself out there and work for it. And it's the energy you're putting forth as well, right? Like I had a ton of positive energy. Also, when you're younger, people really want to help you. You know, as you get older, people, I don't really have time for you. You got to figure it out yourself, maybe. But when you're young, people really, and you know, you might not consider yourself young when you're in college, but you're young compared to like a lot of the rest of the world. So it's a time where people actually want to help you and invest in you. And so to, to be hopeful and to have that positive energy and to, to sincerely ask for, you know, somebody's thoughts or advice in an area, you're going to get some pretty good, I think, ROI from, from your courage. A hundred percent, Tina. One of the most common mind-blowing discussions that I have with college students usually revolves around helping them to see that what we majored in, in college or university, aren't the tiny houses that we're going to be forced to live in for the rest of our lives, but rather it's the foundation 
of a professional skyscraper, one that you see in New York City, with each new job and each new career, adding a new floor in that skyscraper. And as long as you are following your interests, every step of the way, or most of the steps of the way, decades later, when you're my age, you're a couple of decades out of school, when you look in the rearview mirror, it almost seems like you planned it all out. When in reality, not virtual reality, but the real reality, it was more fly by the seat of your pants. How would you say that your professional journey lines up? What is the common thread, Tina, that you've been pulling on and may have led you every step of the way? My life, the things you want in life change over time, right? So in some parts of your your time, you might want stability. Others, you might want adventure. And not that, you know, you're not going to find one job that necessarily is going to provide you with all of those things. So I'd say the important thing to think about is to pursue what either you're good at or what brings you joy, both. And if you are early in your career and you're doing something that you already know you don't like, imagine being in that doing that same thing for 10, 15, 20 years, that's not going to be fun. So the first thing is to think about what you enjoy doing and are good at doing. And if you can find that, that's, that's really wonderful. And you're being able to have the courage to know that career will last 30 or 40 or maybe even longer years. And you're going to want to probably try to do different things. So keeping an open mind, being able to have the confidence that when you want to do something new, you're not necessarily going to have the experience in it, but you should use the experience you have to then help you get to the next area. So you don't always have to be the perfect person that has already done the thing, but you'll have done something that people will value and you'll want to talk up how that's relevant. So being able to, I think, just have an open mind, having the confidence in pursuing things that you love to do. And of course, it's important to make money and you should think about that as well for you know, financial stability. But if you go into doing something that is just about maybe making money, but you hate what you're doing, that might not be a great recipe for long-term success. I hear you. (laughs) I hear you. So two final T4C questions. Could you share a time in your professional life, Tina, when you struggled? Maybe you even failed. But what's most important here is how you persevered and if there was a lesson you learned in the process rather. And I'm thinking specifically about maybe your efforts to get into Facebook as being one example, unless you have another one that you would like to share. Yeah, I mean, I had a very hard... So like Facebook, I applied four times before I finally got an interview and got accepted into the role. Over like a a period of seven years, I applied at different times. So it's like, it's about not taking no for an answer, right? And not taking it personally. Some people might be like, screw them. I never want to work for them. But no, if it's a company you find interesting, let's not be egotistical about it. Let's find the right time and you know, there will be a different person that will want you right down the road, a different group, whatever that is. So try not to take it personally. I think the hardest time that I had in my career was when there was a recession. I think this was 2008. And we didn't know it was a recession at the time because often you don't know it's a recession until afterwards. And I lost my job and I had such a hard time finding a new job because nobody was hiring. And so there are some things that are out of your control, but you need to kind of keep networking and keep trying. And I was very lucky that because of my network and I now had a maybe a bit of a reputation in games as somebody that was you know, fun to work with and great to work with, whatever, that I was able to, to get a job. But it, it, I was very sad. I, in that time, I was engaged and I had broken off an engagement. And then I lost... Well, I first I lost my job and then my engagement 
ended and I was really down on my luck. And it was a recession that <laughs> I had to show up at these uh, interviews. I did interview. There were jobs, but I didn't get them. And I would show up and I had to pretend like I was happy. Like I was a normal, happy person, even though like my life is not. But I still had to go at it because that's what you need to do. That's what I needed to do. And over time, I was able to to get a really another role in gaming that ended up being really fun. There was a startup that was acquired, successfully acquired by a larger company. And it was a, a wonderful experience. But you're going to have hardships and you're going to have to figure out a way to pick yourself up and put a plan together. And even if it's a recession, like there's somebody hiring. Sometimes you need to take a break for your own mental health and well-being. But know that if you have kind of the desire and the heart to overcome and you have goals and you have a plan, like stick with it. It'll work, you know, and, and you have a reputation behind you. And that's why it's really important for you to build out your network because sometimes people will need you. Sometimes you will need people and that's how it works. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Tina. Yeah. Final question. If you could go back to UCLA and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I would say you can do so much more than you could possibly imagine. So shoot for the moon, put a robust plan together, surround yourself with people who believe in you and want you to win and you'll be okay. You really, those are the, I think the makings of being able to, to make your dreams come true is dream big, be willing to work hard, surround yourself with the right people that believe in your dreams and believe in you and will push you. Amazing, amazing advice. Tina, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community, Microsoft, and your colleagues in the BizDev team. They are so fortunate to have you working with them. Thank you. I feel like I've been on a really wonderful journey and I'm so happy that maybe some of the things I've learned might be helpful to others as you start your careers. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.